Welcome to the Philcraft Survival Podcast with your host, Mike Glover. Hey guys, welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today we're going to be talking everything tactical carbine. You know, it's a good episode, it's an exciting episode because you know, everybody likes to talk about tactics. Everybody likes to talk about weapon systems. And specifically to the M4 or the AR-15, it's an exciting platform because it's utilized in every facet of the tactical industry. And I've utilized it my entire military career. So for the last couple of decades, I've seen it perform in combat. I've seen it fail in combat. And I got a lot of good perspective on the M4 and how to optimize that to get the best bang for your buck. So we're gonna cover in this episode, a little bit about carbine history, anatomy of a carbine, talking about operating systems, talking about how they function. I'm gonna give you a couple of war stories where I've seen it do really well in combat and where I've seen it do really poor in combat. I'm also gonna talk about my preferred rifle setup and my setup for different operations or different environments and show you how to set those battle rifles up the way you need to depending on where you live or what the application is. Also, we're going to be talking specifically about the accessories that you can get for these M4s or these AR-15s. I mean, the tactical industry with SHOT Show going on this week, it's a billion dollar industry and the AR-15 leads that industry in optics, accessories, lights, lasers, night fire, ammunition, barrels. I mean, you name it, there's an accessory for it on the AR-15 platform. So we'll talk about those accessories, my preferred accessories, and we'll talk about optimizing the battle rifle, making it the best weapon system possible by changing a couple of things and making sure that they sync together. Also, we'll talk about some tactical training. I'll talk and highlight my training course with BCM, which is our tactical gunfighter carbine course, and also talk about some things that you could do on your own to get the best training that you can with the weapon system itself. So looking forward to this, and I hope after this episode, you're better educated to make a better informed decision when looking at your next AR-15 platform. All right, guys, so let's start out with talking about the history of the AR-15 platform. You know, the AR-15 has a long history, starting off in the Vietnam War, really when they were using CAR-15s. CAR-15s were carbines, but they had systemic issues during the Vietnam War really that had to do with the manufacturing process. And the CAR-15 was primarily used by the military and specifically special operations. MACV SOG, the Mike teams, Navy SEALs, a whole bunch of different special operations elements utilize these things. These soft elements or special operations forces elements, these soft elements utilize these weapon systems and had a lot of issues with them. The first biggest issue was the barrel length which is a carbine format, was 10 inches. And at the time, going off the grain of bullet that they had, which was a lighter 55-grain bullet, they weren't seeing the best ballistics come out of that. And then you look at the 62-grain green tip, which was causing even more issues with a 10-inch barrel. It just didn't, wasn't optimized with the best trajectory. So you saw these big holdovers in order to achieve hits on target. Not only that, because the round was a 5.56 by 45 millimeter round, you saw it zipping through guys at high velocity, but it wasn't causing a lot of displacement and disruption of tissue, 
which would cause, you know, normally cause lethal hit. So, you know, there was projectile issues, there was short barrel issues. Well, back in the day when they were doing covert or unconventional operations in Vietnam, they needed a compact battle rifle in order to be able to achieve their objectives. So the M16 at the time wasn't really the best weapon system to be utilized. So when they started seeing the CAR 15s fail, you had MACV saw guys that were using RPDs, they were using AK 47s. You know, they were taking different weapon systems off the battlefield and they were modifying them to make them work. And they also saw that based on the triple canopy and the vegetation, that these rounds, they would impact, slightly impact vegetation and get thrown off course because the round was so light and the rounds were so small. But 762 was punching straight through the vegetation, whether it was 762 by 39 or 762 by 51, it was doing a lot more damage than the 556. You know, this all kind of changed later on after the Vietnam War when Colt decided they took the Colt Commando and the M16A2 rifles and they took the best features of these guns and created the XM4. You know, the XM4 had a 14 and a half inch barrel. It had a one and seven inch twist chrome line barrel, which, you know, was better for the heavier rounds. And overall, it was a more reliable weapon system. You also had the ability to mount a bayonet and the M203 grenade launcher. You know, obviously bayonets, hey, I was fixing bayonets and basic training in the infantry, but more importantly, it was utilized to mount the M203 grenade launcher. So you had external accessories. The XM4 is also had a rear sight cartridge deflector that threw the round and helped with the extraction process. So in 1994, the military accepted the XM4 into service as the M4 carbine to replace all M16A2s in certain roles. So in the 90s, only in the 90s, and you know, recent history was the M4 carbine replacing all these different submachine guns, these different handguns in the military service and being utilized as an effective battle rifle in the field. You know, I've seen a lot of different issues throughout time with SPRs, with different variants of the AR-15 platform, because mostly the ammunition that was allocated at the time for military service wasn't matching barrel twist, wasn't matching barrel length, and you were running into issues. So the M4 has this recent history, and now you see this explosion, this explosion of all these different accessories, of all these different options that you could put on the M4 to increase its capabilities. You know, whether it's increasing the accuracy, whether it's increasing the speed in which you could shoot the gun, or just increasing how you eject a magazine, how you load a magazine. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. In fact, I have a buddy named Todd Van Langen in 3rd Special Forces Group who just recently posted up and he's working with a company that's taking a modified kit and adapting it to the AR-15 platform so it could shoot pistol ammunition. And it could cycle this ammunition the same way it cycles rifle ammo. There's tons of accessories and tons of different things that you can look at for the M4 rifle. Operating-wise, the M4 rifle, the M4 carbine, is a gas impingement operating system, which means that basically... It uses the gas that's blown off after the combustion takes place in the chamber, and then it bleeds through a gas tube, which cycles the bolt to the rear. There's some distinct advantages and disadvantages to this operating system. Typically with gas impingement, you see 
more accurate rifles when compared to gas piston or gas tappet systems. A gas impingement also, from what I've seen, have been semi more reliable. And I say semi because, you know, there's some good gas piston systems on the market now that are three times, four times the price of a gas impingement that are more reliable. But generally speaking, gas impingement are a real good battle rifle that's more reliable overall. And I say that kind of hesitantly because if you don't clean a gas impingement gun because the gas is being cycled back into the gun, you have a lot of carbon that's being drawn with that gas. And then you get carbon foul in the chamber, carbon foul on the bolt carrier group and on the bolt, which obviously can cause issues when you haven't done the proper maintenance on your M4 or your AR-15. All right, guys, so it's war story time. No shit there I was. I was in Iraq. And it was about 07, 2006, 2007. And we were doing an operation where we are conducting a hostage rescue. And we were using the Iraqi counterterrorism force, the ICTF. The ICTF is an elite special operations unit that was trained by special operations guys in Jordan. So, you know, we took these guys and we're doing operations all over Iraq, all over Baghdad. In this particular op, we had to do a hostage rescue in Sadr City. If you guys know anything about Sadr City, Sadr City is a Shia, was a Shia, and is a Shia stronghold of a whole bunch of al-Sadr Mahdi militia guys. You know, Mukhtar al-Sadr, a militant commander in those days, and he had basically a lot of Iranian influence and was doing a lot of bad shit, including bringing over EFPs, these shape charge IEDs, and killing our guys. So these guys would set up these EFPs prior to us going in and we would utilize tanks called Team Rock to suck up all these EFPs, get ourselves into Sadr City and conduct these operations. This particular operation was a hostage rescue where we wanted to rescue some Iraqi guys that were being held hostage. So as the assault force went in, I was on a blocking position slash sniper overwatch position. So me and another sniper, Chris, linked up with the big army and we were in a blocking position with tanks, Bradleys, and a regular army sniper team with a couple of machine gunners. So as we're sitting there in this blocking position, basically we're taking up a couple of blocks with Bradleys and tanks, providing basically square to control. If somebody squirts out of the objective, a bad guy, and they start maneuvering away, we could provide some type of overwatch or fire support in order to support the operation but also a blocking position to stop anybody from coming in and anybody from going out. Well, as this operation was going down, right when it kicked off, the assault force got engaged and it turned into a gun battle. As this started to develop, our situation changed at the blocking position and we started engaging squirters, guys that were quick reaction forces that were going to the gunfight and it turned into this big battle. Chris was a senior to me, so he made the decision, hey, let's go to the rooftop of this three-story building and get an advantageous spot overwatching the area so we can start seeing if we can engage bad guys. So at the time, we weren't prepared as snipers. We weren't prepared for a sniper operation because we were going to be like the liaison between the assault force and the big army brads and tanks. So we had no place to potentially engage bad guys. So we didn't bring our long guns. We had 10-inch CQB guns. And the regular army sniper team with us had a M24 sniper weapon systems, you know, 762 by 51 bolt guns. And we had a saw gunner, you know, that had an M249 machine gun. 
So as we assaulted this building, we cleared all the way to the top to get a more advantageous position. And we set up with our commo guy. So things are going bad really quickly. And we're on the rooftop and we're noticing that there's QRF elements that are out of our range that are bad guys that are responding and reacting to the assault force. The Bradleys using their big guns are engaging these guys and we're on the rooftop trying to coordinate with the assault force and tell them what we see. I would say probably about an hour into this, you know, an hour into this gunfight, the assault force is pinned down. They're trying to get hostages. They're killing bad guys. They're busy. And what kicks us off is on the back side of this building, which is a big wasteland of, you know, space, open dead space, which is open fields prior to leading into Sutter City, people start maneuvering behind us. So I remember this is like, I mean, this is like a scene out of a movie when I think about this, but the machine gunners on our six o'clock on top of the rooftop and he yells at me, he says, Hey, Sergeant, I got a guy running up and I, I turned around. I'm like, is he armed? He's like, yeah, he appears to be armed. And I look at him like kind of confused, but I'm like, why aren't you killing him? Shoot him. And he's like, Roger that. And he, you know, takes his saw off safety and starts going to work. And I'm thinking, holy shit, man. Like, you know, these guys start laying waste to these bad guys, but it took a while to kick everybody in, you know, this warm up mode of, holy shit, this is going down. This is real. And Chris was on the other side of the rooftop and we're trying to call close air support because we have an F-16 fast mover that's overhead. You know, we had a combat controller that, that was working the aircraft, but I just wanted to know them to know that we were on a friendly forward line and that we weren't to be engaged. So as I'm watching and observing what's going on, we start seeing guys maneuvering down roads and they're engaging the tanks and Bradleys. Well, the tanks and brads are going off and like dropping structures with 105s. I mean, they're destroying this place. And I start noticing that I'm hearing cracks. You know, I'm hearing rounds break the sound barrier and they're, they're snapping over our head as they break the sound barrier. And I'm like, dude, you hear that? And I'm like, you hear the cracks? I'm like, dude, we're, we're getting shot at, but we can't determine where the direction is or where the guys are coming from. So it starts out as small arms fire. And then it progresses where we see impacts of mortar rounds start to impact around the building. I remember seeing one land long, a couple land short. And I'm like, dude, they are mortaring our building and trying to drop this structure. And, you know, I remember looking over and seeing Chris and there's a satellite dish that was above him that was getting hit above his ass with gunfire. And I'm like, dude, these guys are on us. They know exactly where we're, where we're at. So then we start seeing RPGs air bursting above us, you know, plumes of smoke exploding above us. And, you know, RPGs have a maximum range in which they'll detonate out no matter where they're going. RPGs, depending on the round, are really unpredictable, but they will explode after a certain distance. So we were seeing this. We were seeing the RPGs go off above us. We're seeing mortar rounds being bracketed in our position. We're seeing things get impacted. And me and Chris, like with our heads down, pinned down, start maneuvering towards the edge of this building. And while I'm yelling at the RTO to get the radio up so we can get comms with the assault force for our own QRF, we're in a position where we can't leave the building that we're in because if we do, we're in open space where mortar rounds 
are impacting. And you know, most of these guys use 82 millimeter mortars, these Chinese mortars, but they have they still have significant kill radiuses on impact. So we're not risking that. We're just pinned down on top. And we're trying to get an advantageous position. At this time, the sniper, the regular army sniper that I was with us killed a couple guys. And he was just giving us updates on maneuvering of bad guys. So me and Chris push forward and we have our 10-inch guns and they're 10-inch barrels with EOTEX. And we get over the lip of this edge of this building and we start seeing guys basically in black pajamas start doing individual movement techniques along these roads and these alleyways. And I remember this dude, he was running towards this bus and he was trying to get to this bus and he runs and he gets inside of it. Well, I went to engage him and it, it seems like it was relatively close. And I'm thinking it was probably, it was probably 500 meters. But as I went to engage him, I remember not even seeing the impact of my rounds. And so I obviously, at this point in my career, understood holdovers and I knew there was disadvantages by using a 10-inch gun. And especially with the round, it depends on the round, but but if you have a round that isn't optimized with the barrel, then you're deficient in your range. Well, I remember holding over and not even seeing impacts and I couldn't see the impacts of my round. And I finally held over so high that I, I was almost elevating my gun at a 45 degree angle and shooting in the air like an indirect firing system where I was splashing rounds onto this bus. And I was hitting the bus because I blew out the back windows, blew out some side windows, but it wasn't enough to affect the target. And this is a target that I could see with my naked eye through my EOTech and it positively identify. These guys were maneuvering down this road and they were trying to get in this bus to use it as a QRF platform to be able to push forward and get to the assault force. And these guys all had guns. They all they were all dressed up, ready to get their fight on. And this regular army sniper that I was with started to engage him with a 7.62 by 51. And for a 500 meter shot with a 7.62, you know, optimized sniper rifle with a 10 power scope, he was able to engage this vehicle and, and take some of these guys out. And I felt so inadequate in that moment in my life that at one point I even cock block the machine gunner and winded up taking one of the guy's saws to go to work. And I even pushed the other saw gunner up so they could start going to work. Long story short, we got off the rooftop. F-16 actually did a low pass and actually saved our asses. We got linked up with the tanks and the brads and made movement. Total, I didn't kill this many, but total we killed like 60 plus combatants in Sutter City between the assault force and us and shut down Sutter City for a long period of time because obviously when you kill that many people in a city, shit happens and, and we weren't allowed to go back in that city and operate. So the big lesson learned for me since that day, since that day, actually, I've never used a 10 inch gun for anything that required any kind of distance. You know, when I was a sniper, we used to use 10 inch guns to fight through the building. And then when we got to the rooftop, we would bag out our long guns and then transition to a SR-25 or a gas gun, 7.62 by 51 gas gun to be able to do work. Because, you know, you, you didn't want to do CQB with a 7.62 gas gun, even with an offset J point or anything like that. It just wasn't optimal. So we would use two different guns. And then we started transitioning to 14.5 inch guns. Recently on soldiersystems.net through BCM, I did an article on this battle rifle that we tested. So in 
USASOC, we meaning snipers and the commanders and extremist force developed this platform using a LaRue upper. I think it changed to Daniel Defense at some point, but basically took a platform and wanted to optimize a battle rifle. One of the significant issues that we ran into when the SOP mod kits came out, you know, SOP mod, think about, you know, the M4 as it sits. Well, the Picatinny rail, for example, the universal, you know, Knight's armament rail systems that use these Picatinny adapters were able to take all these accessories that we didn't have before and apply them to the battle rifle. You're talking about lasers, you're talking about lights, battle grips, and the list goes on. So when we got these rifles, they were 14.5 inch barrels. You know, they're from SOCOM, Special Operations Command. They were heavy barreled, one and seven twist barrels that had lugs on them for 203s, but they had six inch Picatinny row space. We basically had seven inches of potential row space that wasn't being utilized because we didn't have the Picatinny rail setup. And the problem that we were running into is when you mount lasers, lights, pimp grips, all this shit, you don't have space to put your hand. And so it really impeded the progress of these guns. Well, after that big gunfight, you know, soft as a whole, we're looking at different options of different weapon systems that we could utilize to make sure that we have the optimized battle rifles for use depending on our environment. So we developed this weapon system. We looked at different muzzle brakes. We looked at different rails and it gave us more space. I mean, we even set these things up with bipods. After we field tested these and we took them to combat and utilized them, it was a game changer for us in accuracy and utilizing one DMR or designated marksmanship rifle instead of having a whole bunch of AR platforms transitioning to the guns. We had one platform that we utilized and leverage that was capable in almost any situation. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen USASOC make was they issued these Daniel Defense uppers that were 10-inch uppers. When they transitioned to these uppers, a lot of guys lost their 14.5-inch barrels. So they lost all this range. I mean, I've been at Todd Hodnett's in Canadian Texas at Accuracy First, and we're shooting targets out to 1,000 meters with an M4 with a 14.5-inch barrel. That's really significant when you think about it. So to take those, get rid of them, and then give guys 10-inch barrels that are going to Afghanistan. And I've seen them rock them. I've seen, I've seen guys rock 10-inch barrels in Afghanistan. If you're doing nighttime operations where you're doing unilateral ops, you're actively going after bad guys at night, and you know it's going to be a deliberate op at night, then that's different because you're contained on target, you're contained on the objective, you got gunship support, you get all these assets. But when you're going out and the operations go from day to night, night to day, and you don't have the option to have a battle rifle that reaches out and touches someone, you're impeding your ability to properly operate. That's not a knock on anybody in special operations. That's a knock on the fact that we had to put one in and take one out. All right, so what is my preferred rifle setup for the AR platform? I would say that the AR-15 platform, the M4, generally speaking, is a universal battle rifle, which means it could be used in different environments and you don't have to change up a lot of things. I tell people this all the time when trying to pick out an AR-15 platform. Most AR-15 platforms are manufactured by the same big companies. You know, whether it's Colt, whether it's Armalite, all these manufacturers source their lowers and uppers that are milled from the same exact places. So what I would recommend, number one, is truly identify what your weapon system is used for. 
if it's used for defense, if it's used for rural hunting, if it's used for CQB versus target shooting, you have to set it up to fit your needs. I'm one of those guys who likes the idea of having a rifle that could be utilized in every way. Meaning if I have to use it for a CQB platform, I could utilize it as a CQB platform. I could go from clearing a house to going to the rooftop and then engaging a rural target. I could bag it out and then I could take it to the range and do Camp Perry style, national match style shooting with it and just changing out the rounds. So I want a universal, overall universal rifle. What's that look like? Well, one of my favorite rifles is made by BCM, by Bravo Company, and it's the Recce rifle. I prefer the 14.5 inch barrel. I like a one in seven twist and I like to set it up with a two stage trigger. They make one stage triggers that are good for matches that, you know, three gun matches or competition shooting. But I like having that prep of that first stage and then knowing when I'm going to press and get that second stage. I also want as much Picatinny rail as possible, but I'm not a big fan of quad rails, quad Picatinny rails. You know, if you run quad Picatinny rails, you got too much accessory space. If I'm running a flashlight on the left side of a quad rail, why the hell do I need, you know, an additional 13 inches of rail space on a 14.5 inch gun? So what I am a fan of is having top rail space for a universal light sight, for a laser, for an optic, and then having the side be key mod or some other type of system where it's milled out which means there's nothing there, which makes it lighter. But then if I have to put, you know, a little bit of Picatinny rail space or mount something key mod style, I could do it and then save that weight. I like a light battle rifle. One of the things I also like is different types of brakes for different types of conditions. Most states, you have to pin a 16 inch battle rifle or a 16 inch AR-15. The muzzle brake has to be pinned to the barrel. Well, if that's the case, pick a universal muzzle brake that's not only going to assist you with the muzzle flip, but obviously is going to help you with the flash. I remember being in Iraq and we were doing an operation where I was setting containment on top of a rooftop at night and I had a couple bad guys that went to grab a gun and I engaged them. And up to this point, I had never carried a suppressor full time on my gun. I bagged it out and kept it in a pouch on my kit, but I didn't like to have it on the gun because, you know, having a 10 inch barrel running around, it's really convenient and you're able to maneuver that gun into dead space, into corners. You're able just to move around better. And when I got into this engagement with these bad guys, I actually kicked up a whole bunch of dust off the front end of my gun and it impeded my vision using my infrared lasers. So, you know, when you choose a muzzle brake, choose a muzzle brake that's going to work for you. That's a tactical universal muzzle brake. JP is a good company. JP Rifles is, but they make some mean ass muzzle brakes like their tactical and their recoil eliminator. I mean, these things blast off all the gas coming out the front of that gun, but you're going to pay for it. Like if you're in a confined space and you get a gunfight, everybody in the vicinity of that brake is going to be deaf, dumb, and blind. So you need to have a brake that's universal, that bleeds off enough gas to reduce muzzle flip, but still tactically sound. It doesn't rupture your eardrums every time you shoot it. Sometimes muzzle flip is a good thing and it assists with you getting a fast secondary shot and reducing your split time because you're getting back on target faster with the muzzle flip. You know, sometimes 
you want that muzzle flip to feed you the next shot. So don't always impede that and, and eliminate it. You know, recoil eliminator that reduces all recoil, period. There's no felt recoil. It's kind of a hard thing to get used to. In competition, it's great, but as a tactical battle rifle, it might not be the best idea. I recommend Surefire's tactical brake. That's one of my favorite brakes because it's universal. If I want to do a Surefire suppressor, I can mount it to it later on. So definitely recommend that. My favorite trigger is a Geisley SSA trigger, which is a two-stage trigger. So what about optics? You know, optics is something that you have to practice with, and there's obviously some significant budgetary considerations. These optics can go from anywhere from a couple hundred bucks to a few thousand dollars for just one optic. One of my favorite optics that I run is my Bushnell 1-8. to Now, it's a variable scope, so I can adjust the magnification, but I can dig down and get a good sight picture when I need to for mid-range for a AR-15 platform. It's around three to 500 meters, but also allows me to dial it down. So if I'm doing something like CQB, I could still get a good sight picture with minimal scope shadowing and can pick up proper eye relief with no issues. It's a good overall optic. It's pretty expensive. They're pricey, but they're good optics. Another recommendation is using something that's variable. You know what? My favorite optic in the military was an LCAN 1 to 4 power. They're hella expensive, but they're really good. And I used to run a doctor sight on top of that to be able to do reflexive CQB distance type shooting. The EOTech is a great option for non-magnified optics where you have a big field of view. This latest and greatest craze is doing this micro T. I didn't grow up on a micro T and I could reflect shoot in micro T because I, I'm used to that little window of that small sight picture, but I'm not used to that small sight picture, if you get what I mean. I like the big window on an EOTech where I could still do work in that window. Um, disadvantage is obviously they're heavy, they're expensive. You can't go wrong with any of those optics. I leave it open to interpretation. You know, if you're somebody who uses your AR-15 and you have it sitting next to your bed as a tactical consideration, you want an optic where you could get a sight picture immediately on reflex, meaning bringing it up to a ready and not having to put your neck or your eye and getting this proper eye relief every single time. You want to snap it up into a position, see the dot, overlay it on a target and start engaging. Other cool accessories that are now available to civilians are lasers. You know, infrared lasers is a huge capability for civilians trying to do defense. You know, if you have a monocular or a binocular set of nods set up and you have an infrared laser that's zero to your gun, dude, you're going to be able to do work and have a huge advantage over anybody else. Obviously, the price, it's hella expensive to get into, but it's definitely something to consider. A tactical light is a no-brainer. Every weapon system that you own should have a separate tactical light or a light actually mounted to it. One of my favorite lights to mount to an M4 platform is the Scout, the Surefire Scout. The Scout's a small light. It does the job of illumination, and it's probably the best bang for your buck. Sling-wise, you know, I, I, used, I grew up in the military using a rucksack strap. You know, I had some of VTACs, some of Special Operation Units, first prototype slings that I used that were just basically tubular nylon with a rucksack strap where you can cinch it and uncinch it. What I do like is I love Haley Strategic's two-point sling because it's easy to use. I'm a big fan of two points. I like mounting the front of my sling right in front of the low receiver and right on the buttstock. And the reason I like doing that is because I could pin my weapon system down to my back if I'm doing work with my hands, if I'm climbing 
and I don't have to worry about the barrel moving around. And because it's not front mounted closer to the barrel, I know I have full control of that barrel. But stock wise, I'm a big fan of the CTR, the minimalist Magpul stocks. I don't like a lot of shit on them. I don't need this big ass cheek weld for my cheek. I, I don't need a lot of fancy stuff. As far as backup iron sights go, you know, I've always had backup iron sights on most of my guns and most of my setups, but really have never utilized them and never seen them used. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a contingency for your gun, but for the most part, having backup iron sights isn't going to hurt your gun. If you don't have the rail space, then forget about it. But if you do, there's no reason that you can't mount backup iron sights. The backup iron sights I use are made by arms. They're like plastic. They're synthetic. They're hard plastic. They're light and fairly inexpensive. So this transitions us into talking about ammo too, because it's, you know, ammo could be looked at as an accessory because you could choose different kinds of ammo for different kinds of application. What are my favorite types of ammo? Well, number one, I'm a big fan of Hornady ammo, 75 grain Hornady with a one and seven twist barrel, 14.5 inch length barrel is an awesome round to reach out and maximize the full capabilities of the AR-15 platform. One of my favorite defense rounds that I've actually seen in combat utilized is the Barnes 70 grain. It's the brown tip. When I was doing uh, operations in Afghanistan, I remember when the, one of our team leaders got the first batch of 70 grain and we had done a vehicle interdiction and he was the first one on the bird. He ran towards the bad guys, those two bad guys, and he did work. I mean, he shot both these guys in their in fat terrorist heads. And I got the opportunity to fish these rounds out of their faces with a Gerber. And, you know, we did this because obviously when you, when you engage bad guys on the battlefield, you want to know ballistically what these rounds are doing to bad guys. Now, I won't go into too much detail about, you know, what this round does to tissue. I'll just tell you that's an effective fighting round. And it's one of the best rounds I've seen on the battlefield. You have to remember that with a 14 and a half inch barrel with one and seven twist, you have to remember there's a specific grain of round that could be utilized with the barrel twist to optimize its performance. 55 grain is too light. A 62 grain by design was meant to kick that round out. But even better is the 75 grain, the 70 grain, the 77 grain are all better. And they'll all give you minimal bullet drops across the board. All right, so moving on to tactics, what are some things that you could do with your M4 to make yourself a better shooter? One of the favorite drills to do is a drill that I did in the contracting realm, which is called the rundown. Now, the rundown is utilized to measure your accuracy in different shooting positions, your ability to move fast, and getting these positions properly so you can get an accurate shot. All right, guys, so here's how the 200-yard rundown works. So you're going to start off on the 100-meter line. At the 100-meter line, you're going to take off and you're going to run to the 200-yard line, turn, lay prone, and take two rounds. After the two rounds, you're going to get up, run down range to the 100-yard line, take two rounds kneeling. Those two rounds kneeling could be on both knees or they could be a traditional kneel with one knee on the ground, one knee up. You're going to stand up, run to the 50-yard line, and do two rounds standing. Run to the 25-yard line and you're going to do two rounds standing. And to finish it off, you're going to run to the 10-yard line and do two rounds standing. Some people like to do two rounds in the head for the last two rounds. And that should take you two minutes total. You got two minutes total for that drill. The target to use is typically done with an IPSC or IDPA target that has an A zone, a C zone, and then a D zone. I'll tell you that I'll leave you guys a link 
to Kyle DeFore's website, and he has a lot of good AR-15 drills or carbine drills that you could do, including this one as the 200-yard rundown. All right, what else can you do? Well, Phil Craft has a training course coming up. You know, I get asked a lot of the time, am I sponsored by BCM, Bravo Company? I am sponsored by BCM. And, you know, I provide content. I provide reviews. I provide gunfighter courses, including our BCM gunfighter course that's coming up. I'm not on their gunfighter website yet. That's going to take some time. I'm still working on that. But Philcraft does have a carbine course coming up in Fernley, Nevada on March 25th. This course is going to cover a whole bunch of stuff, including warrior mindset and how to effectively shoot, move, and communicate. You know, this is a 500-round course, and we're looking forward to that. It's going to be an exciting course. Hey, guys, that's all I got for this episode. It's been uh, 30-something minutes into this. Time flies by when you're talking about tactical stuff, especially carbine and pistol. Next episode, we're going to be talking about the military decision-making process. Now, I know a lot of you guys are like, oh, shit, military decision-making processes. I'm going to teach you some tidbits of information that I utilized in special operations as far as planning is concerned that you could apply to your everyday life that might help you with quicker and more effective ways to plan and think through things a little bit easier using acronyms, using planning methodologies. So it should be a good podcast. Hey guys, again, I appreciate all the support. If you guys want to check us out, our courses, our equipment, anything that we're doing, you could check us out on www.philcraftsurvival.com. You can check us out on our social media pages. That's Facebook at Philcraft Survival. Also, we're on Instagram at Soft Survivor, SOF Survivor, and at Philcraft Survival. If you guys got any questions or any feedback or anything you want to hear from us, please feel free to hit us up at media at philcraftsurvival.com. You know, this week's The Shot Show. A lot of people in the industry are busy. I hope this episode helped you guys a little bit in making a better informed decision when looking at your next firearms purchase. All right, guys. Till next time, stay alert, stay alive. Stay alive.